Well, over the past couple of weeks, we have been thinking through the therefores, we've been calling them, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've meditated and contemplated what it means that Christ is risen, and the little sliver of those therefores that we have taken up have been that of commissioning, the call to go, the call to evangelism, the call to missions, the call to do apologetics even. So we've been thinking, because Christ is risen, we must go. As a church, and whatever that means for us as individuals in our own little spheres, we too are called to go and participate in the corporate going of the church as Jesus gave to his church at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And this morning in our text, we circle back around now to the Great Commission once again, but this time in, in the book of Acts. And again, the Great Commission is here for us in the context of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension is one of those events in church history, it gets short shrift. It doesn't get the attention of, of Christmas or of Easter, but it's an event in the history of redemption that we would do well to slow down and to contemplate. I think one reason this is the case is because as evangelicals particularly, we tend to view Christianity through the lens of personal experience, personal decision, personal relationship as evangelicals, and I'm speaking very broadly here in terms of evangelicals, but as evangelicals, we certainly emphasize the personal dimension of our faith. I just know growing up, that's what I was always, was always heard about, how the need for a personal relationship. I need to do my personal devotions. Everything was personal. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that in as far as it goes, but there is a real danger that comes alongside of it because when we read the Bible and when you read the Gospels and when you read Jesus talking about things, he does not say in his parables, the personal relationship with me is like, a personal relationship with God is like a mustard seed. You know, a personal relationship with God is like a, a man who had two sons. You know? He doesn't say that. He says, the kingdom is like. The kingdom of God is like. He's speaking of something big. He's speaking of something corporate. He's thinking, he's speaking of something cosmic. And not that that means there shouldn't be a personal relationship with Jesus. Of course there should be. But Jesus says ultimately that that personal relationship needs to be in this bigger, broader thing of the kingdom, and we struggle, this does not come naturally to us, to talk about the kingdom. In fact, oftentimes you'll hear evangelicals saying things like, you know, Christianity is not political. It most certainly is political. It centers around a king, for crying out loud. It's about a kingdom. Of course, it's not political in the sense that it's not Republican or Democrat per se, but it has something to say to Republicans, and it has something to say to Democrats. And it has something to say to America, and it has something to say to all the kings of the earth, because the truth of Christianity is it is a kingdom, and there seated on the throne of heaven and earth is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the King of America, and he's the King of Ukraine, 
He's the king of Russia. He's the king of China. He's the king of every kingdom. And therefore, Christianity has something to say to the kings of the earth. And when we look at Jesus, and we've thought about this before, when we get to the climax of the story there at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will see all kinds of royal imagery swirling around. After all, what's happening there at Golgotha is a clash of all sorts of kingdoms. It's a clash of Rome and Israel and Jesus, and they're all colliding in this moment. But the question that is at hand with Pontius Pilate is not, oh, do you claim to be a personal savior of people? It's, hey, wait a second. The rumor is you're claiming to be king. Is that true? And when finally they crucify him, there above his head, placarded in three languages, it says Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, the king of the Jews. So everybody could read it. And this is what happens when you claim to be king of the Jews. And again, Pontius Pilate spoke more than he knew when he made statements like that. What's happening at the cross is something royal, something cosmic, something about a kingdom. And when Satan tempts Jesus, you'll remember in the wilderness, we know the first temptation, turn these stones to bread, and we don't have time to go into all the temptations. Turn these stones to bread, Jesus counters with the word of God. Throw yourself off the temple. See if God really has your back. But the third temptation was, bow before me, and I'll give you the thing you really want. I know what you've come for. You've come for the kingdoms. Bow before me. I'll surrender them. I'll give them to you whatever control I have over them. And make no mistake about it, he had control over them. This is what effect the fall had, that when man committed cosmic treason, when man said, not your will, but our will be done, the Father said, then you may have it. And turned us, if you will, over to the tyranny of Satan. And Satan, if you will, had this Delegated is the wrong word. What's a better word for it? But this given authority over the nations, holding them in captivity. And yet Christ came to achieve them. Christ came to win them and take them back. It's a battle for the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan, in that third temptation, says, ah, I'll give them to you. I'll just surrender them to you. I know it's what you want. And Jesus Christ resists the temptation to do what Adam did, and that is grab easily for what God has in store for him, but will have to come by learning obedience through what he suffers. And he resists and will go to the cross and achieve the nations, achieve the kingdoms of this world the right way, the way that God has ordained. But make no mistake about it. What Jesus is doing in his ministry is coming and waging holy war for the sake of the kingdoms of this world. He is the king, and he will have all the kingdoms of the earth under his authority. 
Now, behind this story, and this brings us in some part to Psalm 2, which was our word of exhortation today, the nations of the earth, the king, the would-be kings of the earth, plot in vain against the king of kings. They scheme and they have all their plans for what they will do to resist the authority of the king. But God in heaven, we're told, laughs at them. He will set his son, his king, upon his holy hill. And he will dash all the nations to pieces like pottery if they refuse to bow before him. That's the context of what's going on. This is the grand story. All the nations, if you will, in their cosmic treason have surrendered to and been turned over to a rival king. But the king of kings will come back and he will set all things right and he will achieve the kingdoms of this world. And this brings us then, going through the cross and the resurrection, it brings us to the moment of the ascension, which we have in Matthew 28 and also here in Acts 1. Jesus gathers his disciples together as he's about to ascend, and we'll look at this ascension in a second, particularly in light of the vision Daniel gets in in Daniel 7. And he commissions them again to go. The therefore of the resurrection and the therefore of the ascension of Jesus Christ is go, tell. In this case, the particular language of Acts 1.8 is be my witnesses. In Matthew's version, you'll remember in Matthew 28, Jesus has them assembled. And the way that he opens the Great Commission, just before he says it, again, he says these words. Now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? Now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been, not will be one day when I come again, has been given to me. By the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus testifies that what has happened, the fruit, if you will, of this obedience is that all authority over every nation of the earth, over every township, over every would-be little authority on the earth and even in heaven has been given to him. And then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The therefore of the resurrection and the therefore now of the ascension, because I'm going to the right hand of my Father, you must go. And we'll look at that going here in a second. When we look at the story in Acts, right, it's given to us in this narrative. They've assembled together as Jesus has commanded them to. But here again, even the disciples, we know they're in, in verse 6, I believe. They're gathered at the, uh, beside Jesus. He's about to ascend, and they still don't quite understand what's going on. They know this has to do with kingdoms. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, Lord, is this the time now in which you're going to do all the stuff we were expecting you to do? They knew it was about kingdoms. It's just that they get things all muddied up. They muddy the waters. They've, they've misunderstood exactly what kind of kingdom Jesus was bringing and what that kingdom was going to look like. We know that several times within the ministry of Jesus, they don't understand it. Right? They, Jesus tells them what kind of king he's going to be. He has to tell Peter to get behind him, Satan, because he, he knows what kind of kingdom it should be. James and John run up alongside Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem to the cross, and they say to him, Jesus, when you ascend to your throne, can we sit at your right hand and left hand? And Jesus has to tell them, no, those seats are reserved for two others. And he asks them these murky questions like, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Can you, can you, uh, 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 can you handle what, you know, can you sit on this throne where I'm going to sit? And the answer is no. Now they say yes, but they don't know what he's talking about. He's talking about the cross. So the disciples have been confused the whole time about what kind of kingdom Jesus was going to bring, but they understood that it was about a kingdom. So here, once again, having not yet received the Holy Spirit and the clarity that comes with the Holy Spirit, they ask him, is now the time you're going to do what we expected? And Jesus just blows their question right off. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But here's what I will tell you. Like, don't you worry about when I'm doing, when I'm doing what. Even, even, this, even as he ascends, a last exasperation with the, with the disciples. But here's what I will tell you. This is what you can take to the bank. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And here's what this means for you. Go. Don't you worry about times and seasons. Don't you worry about when I'm doing what. Here's what you need to know. I have commissioned you. To do what? Again, this brings us back to some of the themes we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. To do what? To convert people? May God use you to convert many people. I pray that he does. I pray that he uses me to that end. But that's not what he says here. Even in Matthew 28, he says, make disciples, teach, declare. Here, he says, to be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness declares. A witness says, this is what I saw happen. This is what I know is true. And that's what we're called to do. You are to be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of the fact that he is the king of kings and that he has ascended to his right hand. Of course, that as king, he has died for the sins of the world and that he has been raised from the dead and that he is seated at the right hand. You go announce the fact that the king is on his throne. Right? Again, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, it's, I, I go back to the themes of Robin Hood, you know, when, when, when John, Prince John's doing all his devilish deeds there in, in England and Richard is off far away, you know, out on the cru third crusade. 
And who's going who's gonna to be loyal? Who's going to declare as the would-be king as John tries to usurp authority from King Richard? Who's going to be the one to declare? No, Richard is the king. And when he returns home, go out through all the shires. Go out through all the villages and declare it. Richard's home. Richard is on his throne. This is what we are to do. This is how the news of the rightful king being seated upon his throne gets out to the nations. And you got to go be the witnesses in your little sphere. But we as the church need to be these witnesses to declare in the midst of a world that looks like it's being plunged into complete chaos to a world that does not know hope to a world for whom if they take a moment to think about it, there is nothing but despair. You arrive. You show up into the shire saying, hear ye, hear ye. I bring good news from the capital. I bring good news. The king of kings is seated firmly on his throne and all would-be powers, all rivals have been overthrown. I know the nation's plot, but they plot in vain, the psalmist says in Psalm 2. Oh, sure, they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, but God who is in heaven laughs at them. He laughs at them. Now, I know when we look around, we look around at our world, and, and these, the, the terrible calamities that we see are nothing to laugh at. We know that. God doesn't laugh at those calamities but he laughs at those who would plot against his authority. Those who think they will make something of their lives apart from him, who say they don't need him. Those who would rise up in his place, who would commit cosmic treason, who think they can be masters of their own destiny. Yes, God laughs at that. It's ridiculous. And in place of them, he has seated his son upon his holy hill. And to his son, he says, you go back and read the son in Psalm 2 as the son, the king speaks, being coronated. And what does he say? He said to me, God said to me, you are my son. Ask of me and I will give you all the nations as your inheritance. And Jesus indeed has received all the nations as his inheritance. And therefore, the commission to you and to me is to go. Where? To all the nations. Go into every nation and make disciples. Go into every nation and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, yea, unto the whole world. Go out with beautiful feet and declare the good news that your God reigns in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, I remind you of the commission that we have in light of the resurrection and in light of the ascension we as a church must care about going. Going, sending, speaking, witnessing, we must declare it. We must not remain silent. In the midst of the darkness that is in our land, you have light. In the midst of the flavorness of our society, and it is flavorless, indeed, you bring the salt of the gospel. So go, be witnesses and declare. You, don't, you do not go alone. You go with the power of the Holy Spirit. My spirit will come upon you and you will receive power. And we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. The beauty and the gift of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost and how you are equipped 
in him to go. For today, you'll just have to trust me. You're equipped. So go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now down in verse 9, after Jesus gives this commission, he ascends. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, when we hear this, again, the reason I chose Daniel 7 as our Old Testament text this morning was because when we're told that a cloud receives him, the image that Luke is bringing back to us is the vision from Daniel 7. Daniel, in this vision, sees the kings of the earth like beasts, these kingdoms that rise up in his time and then, and then coming to this climactic kingdom, this kingdom with iron teeth which I believe is Rome. If you trace the kingdoms there, the fourth kingdom that kind of follows in the line of things is Rome. But it's Rome in sort of a, 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 a archetypal way. It's Rome as like the archetype of all beastly powers. You know, think of Revelation when we preach the Revelation. Much of the image of the beast in the book of Revelation is about Rome, but it's, it's not Rome and that's the end of the story. It's Rome, but it's Rome as an archetypal beast that does what? That seeks to devour the people of God, right? These beasts, one worse than the next, kind of, you know, coming to this climax in in the, in the beastly powers of Rome. And what will they do? They will wage war against the saints of God. They conspire, some too. They plot against the Lord and they conspire together. And Daniel says, I was shook to the core. I mean, it's frightening stuff. Even as we contemplate, when you study church history and you think about periods of time where the church has been desperately persecuted or even in our own time, when you hear the stories, it most certainly happens. It shakes you to the core. But this is what the Bible promised would happen. This is what beastly powers do. This is what the nations do who do not want to bow the knee before God and surrender to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. They wage war against the anointed one and against his saints. And in the midst of this frightening vision, and Daniel is quite overwhelmed by it, his eyes are lifted to heaven. And there he sees the one, the ancient of days, as he calls him, who has all dominion and all power and all authority. He sees the one who in Psalm 2 laughs at the beast. He's not trembling because of the beast. He laughs about the beast. And Daniel's eyes are lifted to heaven and he sees this one in complete peace the ancient of days. And then he sees one like a son of man. He sees one like of his own coming on the clouds to the ancient of days. And he ascends to the ancient of days. And what happens when he gets there? He is given all dominion, all authority and all power. This one, like a son of man, this one like Daniel himself, a representative, if you will, of Daniel and all of Israel, a representative of the people of God against whom the beast is raging, ascends 
to the right hand of the Father and is invested with all authority, power, and dominion. And Daniel is comforted to know that indeed, while down below the cloud, if you will, it looks chaotic. Down below the cloud, it, in fact, it's quite frightening at times. Again, read Revelation. Because in Revelation, you get John picking up on these same themes, right? Down below the cloud, beasts are coming out of the sea and making war against the saints. But above the cloud, there's a sea of glass. Above the cloud is seated God Almighty upon his throne. Above the cloud is a lamb slain yet standing with perfect power, seven horns and crowned with many crowns, before whom all the saints on high are casting their crowns and praising God and cascading waves of praise to him. And he will, he already has, and will complete his victory over all the beastly powers who wage war against him and against his church. Now, Make no mistake about it, and you get this in Daniel. At times, it was given to the beast to have victory. It's, it's, it's an, it could be unsettling to read. You get the same thing in Revelation. In Revelation 12, you get the same image, where it was given for a time for the beast to have victory even over the church, meaning, that is, he was allowed to persecute them. And this makes complete sense of what we see throughout church history. Indeed, the church suffers. Jesus said as much. They hated me, they will hate you. They persecuted me, they will persecute you. They're going to kill you. And you know what? When they do, blessed are you. Rejoice, for so they did also to the prophets. Great is your reward. Which brings us finally to the last words of this in verse 11. So they see this one now ascend into the clouds. And just Luke, I believe, wants all of Daniel 7 imagery to come flooding back into your mind. It's not just that Jesus physically goes up to a place called heaven. He's ascending to his throne. He's coming on a cloud before the Ancient of Days and receiving all dominion, authority, and power. That's what's happening here. And the disciples are slack-jawed. They're just, they're, they're all standing there watching. And while they look steadfastly toward heaven, they're just like jaws hanging. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven. Now it is the Son of Man who ascends to the right hand of the Father and has all dominion and authority and who rules over all things for the sake of his church, Paul says. Who for a time calls his church to go and even to suffer as he suffered for the sake of the world. But as we go, even into very difficult and very challenging circumstances at times, even as we have to endure the afflictions of this age, which are so heartbreaking and so troubling, we are to go knowing this fact. The end is certain. He will come as you saw him go. 
he will come again in glory and bring his authority and dominion to bear upon every nation. And hence, Paul says in Philippians 2, on that day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And therefore, it is imperative for you and I to live now as if that is true. It is imperative that we live now in light of that most certain reality that he will come as he left. And on that day, every knee will bow. You want to be the knee that's bowing already when he comes. The knee that is bowing voluntarily. The knee that is bowing with great tears of joy. Not the knees that are broken so that they will bow, broken with a rod of iron. And so it's imperative that we go now as witnesses and live our lives in light of this truth that the one who ascended, the Son of Man, will come and take us all to dwell with him, sharing his reign, sharing his glory for all eternity. I charge you this week to contemplate the ascension of Jesus Christ. I charge you to meditate, I mean that seriously, to, to reflect upon, to chew, if you will. Chew your food. To chew and savor the fact that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father with all authority right now. I had to write a letter to the parents at the school. I teach, I, I, I'm the head of schools at a Christian school. So obviously, the, the events at Uvalde has everybody very anxious, obviously. So I have to write a letter to the parents reminding them of what we do at the school, inviting them to come talk with me if they've got any concerns or questions, reminding them of the different security things that we have in place, of course. But at the end, at the end, I reminded them that our hope and our assurance and our confidence is not in our deputy who patrols our campus. It's not in any piece of technology video cameras, gates, electronic locks on doors. Those are important. We don't take it lightly. But at the end of the day, our hope is not in these things, right? Our hope is in the one who is seated firmly at the right hand of the Father. And I reminded them, not one hair will fall from your children's head apart from his superintendence. And he it's not some random God who has some weird calculus who just, uh, he is your good, holy, heavenly father. The one who sent his only begotten son into the world to redeem you. That is the one who controls all things, who rules even over the chaos of Uvalde, which leaves me with questions that I can't answer. But here's what I do know. Jesus Christ is still king. And before his throne, is not a raging stormy sea, but a sea of glass. He is in sovereign control and his will will be done. And as the Christian, this is our hope now and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ascension of our Savior, that it is he who is seated at your right hand, who has all wisdom, all goodness, all holiness and righteousness, he is the one who is able to wield the rod of iron for he himself has borne the sins of the world and been crushed by it. And having been raised from the dead, it is his righteous reign that this world needs.
and we thank you that he has it. In the presence of beastly powers, in the presence of the chaos of this world and the raging stormy seas that we often find ourselves in, remind us of his sovereign authority that we might live now in light of the truth, that we might live in peace in the midst of the storm, that we might be light in the midst of darkness, that we might bring the salty flavor and joy of the gospel to a bland, dying, and decaying world to the glory of your name and for the sake of our neighbors who do not know you. Bring salvation to them, we pray. Bring that hope to them, we ask. For we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.